There's a new Rubik's cube that set a world record for its size. How big is it? <laughs> And how many U.S. presidents are buried in Arlington Cemetery? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, we've got some fun trivia questions today, and Marcia, you have asked numerous times questions about Rubik's cubes to me. Who invented it? How many combinations are there? Etc. Well, I just found that there is a new Rubik's cube. Uh huh. It's considered the world's largest Rubik's cube and was recently unveiled in Hong Kong. How big is it? Well, how, all right. Is it in feet or inches? It's in feet. All right. I suspected as much. All right. I will say five by five. It's more than eight feet tall and wide. Imagine trying to get your hands around that. <laughs> <laughs> the new Guinness Book of World Records holder debuted at Hong Kong's Nina Mall on March twenty eighth, twenty twenty one. And Yahoo reports that each side is 67 square feet, or more than eight feet tall and wide. And the rows of blocks are capable of being spun independently, just like the real toy. Well, how do you turn it? Well, I've seen pictures of this. They're like four or five men turning these things at a、oh, side. Geez, well, there's so much for playing by yourself. Looks really cool. It looks very fun. In fact, there's a time-lapse video of it being constructed. You can find on the web. I will go there right after the show. Eight feet by eight feet. That's the world's largest Rubik's cube. All right. Here's something in your wheelhouse: cemeteries. You like hanging around them, looking at names. <laughs> so all presidents in the United States are entitled to be buried at Arlington Cemetery.、Mm -hmm. How many are actually there? I think only one. I think John F. Kennedy is the only one there. No, it's twice that, Bob. <laughs> oh, there are two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Who else is buried there? Yeah, JFK and William Taft. Oh, really? Taft. Yeah. William yeah. Howard Taft. Yeah. All right, you know, Marcia. During the COVID lockdown, there were all kinds of shortages: toilet paper shortages. What else did we have that were short? Paper towels. Yeah, primarily、uh, paper towels. Wet wipes and、uh, sanitizer, masks. What's the newest thing that is a shortage? The newest. And it's creating a new market for all your old packets of ketchup. Ketchup. A ketchup shortage is vexing restaurants right now, and that's fueled a secondary market. In coveted ketchup packets, <laughs> can you believe that? No. Kent Riding, a Facebook marketplace seller from Danville, he offered packets for four dollars each, a bargain price of twenty for fifty dollars. Are you kidding me? No. He says there's a shortage. Don't try to lowball me. I、oh. know what I've got. Oh, for God's sakes! <laughs> oh my lord! If you go online, you'll find people on eBay selling these things. Huh. I have to credit Steve、uh, Short because he did that ketchup item in his newsletter. Okay, Marcia, let's go way back in history. You, you're very familiar with the Colosseum in Rome. You've seen it; it's a famous building, and it's one of numerous、uh, stadiums that the Romans built. So, how many people did those stadiums seat? Well, I know a big football stadium holds sixty, eighty thousand. I'll、mm -hmm. say eighty thousand. No, it's not quite as big as today's football stadiums. Oh, okay. Fifty thousand people—that's what the Colosseum could seat. 
And think about the technology to build that that years ago and 50,000 yeah, people. Yeah, I really can't fathom that. It opened in 80 AD with tiers of stone benches flanking the Oval Arena. And that arena floor has since fallen in. And you can see the storerooms where the wild animal cages were. There was a whole series of elevators would lift the wild animals up and they would just magically appear. Can I give you some statistics about the Coliseum? Okay. The largest row of seats was for senators and high-ranking citizens only. So they had VIP kind of box (laughs) seats, just like stadiums today. During the wild animal fights, the Romans erected a fence around the arena to protect spectators and to protect the audience from the sun. The seats were screened by awnings. Wow, they thought of everything. They found nearby some barracks for sailors, and they thought, why were these here? Well, because the sailors knew how to unveil canvas awnings, Ah. and they were employed at the Colosseum. The seats were screened by awnings, which were swung into position by sailors of the Imperial Navy. But it was like the Olympics. The the opening ceremonies for it took 100 days. 9,000 animals were killed during that time. Jeez, God. Sailors and gladiators also killed in the naval battle stage there. They could actually flood it, so you could have boats in there. And uh, they could flood it to a depth of five feet. Okay. All righty, Bob. Steve Short, San Francisco, says, Bob, what's the difference between whiskey and whiskey? One with an E-Y at the end and one with Y, just Y. So one spelled W-H-I-S-K-Y. What uh-huh. is that? How is that difference from the E-Y? Did you ever notice that? I never did. I know the E-Y spelling is in like Ireland and I think England, but whiskey Y with just a Y, is that American whiskey? Well, Bob, you're right. Accidentally. <laughs> no, it's not accidentally. <laughs> well, I mean. Deductive it, reasoning. Yes, that's, that's my wheelhouse. So if it's Y, it's the United States. No, but you're on the right track. Okay. It's just the opposite of that. It, uh, it has sometimes to do with what it's made with, but the main reason is where it was produced. It is generally called whiskey with an E in the United States and Ireland, where just whiskey without an E is in Scotland and Canada. Hmm. So sometimes it's the ingredients and the process. Yeah, but usually it's location. Okay, so EY is in Ireland and the United States. Correct. And Y, W-H-I-S-K-Y, Scotland and Canada. There'll be a test on this again later. Will there? No. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Maybe some whiskey, though. I would have to go look and see what it says on our bottle. Okay, I've got another architecture question, and this is about a building you're familiar with. One country's home for its rulers was built in a reconstruction of an earlier style of architecture. The style of the building was not contemporary when it was built. Which country's home for its rulers is like that? The Louvre? No, that, no, uh uh-uh. Huh, that thought, was built as a palace. Yeah, for yeah, a king. But that was the style that for a king back then. Oh, okay. So I've been in this building? Is no, it... you've not been in this building. Oh, okay. You've been near this building. Near. Around this in, building. Is it in the United States? No. No. I it's don't. in England. In England. I've been around. Oh, is it Buckingham? Buckingham Palace. That was built in 1836 as the uh, royal residence by mm-hmm. architect John Nash, but he completed the palace for William IV, designing a Palladian-style reconstruction of a 1704 mansion that was built for oh. the Duke of Buckingham. So he, he created this to make it look like an older style. We, I figured, well, that was the style when they built it, but it was about 130 years later. And huh. But interestingly enough, William IV disliked the palace. (laughs) That's too big. Queen Victoria was the first British ruler to use the palace as her home after William IV died. Wow. 
I was so in awe of that when I was by myself coming into London to meet you somewhere, and uh, that I asked the taxi driver to drive past the palace, and honest to God, my mouth just dropped open. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd never seen anything quite like that. Remember, we knocked on the door and asked if Liz was home, but they just no, ignored us. No, we didn't us. do that. <laughs> they didn't let us in. I don't understand. <laughs> so we never did get inside. Marsha, I have a question. Do you know what YOLO means? Y-O-L-O. This is, is... is this in texting world? Yes, uh-huh. Uh, YOLO. Something about laughing out loud? No, it's not laughing out loud. Okay. This is You Only Live Once by oh, YOLO. Oh, That was a, uh, you know, an acronym. It was popularized by the rapper Drake a decade ago, but it's coming a back. A decade ago? Yeah. Really? It's a philosophy. It seems to be affecting the way people feel about work after a year in lockdown. Oh, jeez. You only live once, so they're not going back, are So they? YOLO <laughs> is a new meme that a lot of people are using. Like, they go, I've changed my job. YOLO. You uh-huh. know, you only live once. And YOLO is also a meme among stock traders on Reddit. They use it when making irresponsible bets that sometimes pay off anyway, like this GameStop trade that was yeah. so big in yeah. the spring of 2021. People have changed their lives after being at home for a year and just finding other pursuits. It's fascinating study, sociologically speaking, Bob. Speaking of studies, there is a Microsoft survey. How many? What's the percentage of workers globally were considering leaving their jobs after a year in lockdown? Globally? Yeah. What percentage? Uh, 27%. 40. Oh, golly. 40% of workers that wow. this survey touched globally said they were considering leaving their jobs. Here's another one. The Harvard Business School did a survey on people who've been working at home. Uh-huh. What's the percentage of people they found? Now, I've seen other surveys by businesses saying, people can't wait to get back to their jobs in the office, all right? Uh-huh. Well, the Harvard Business School did a survey. What's the percentage of people who don't want to go back to the office? They want to continue working from home. Oh, uh, I bet it's higher, 50 of people who've been working from home through the COVID pandemic either don't want to go back or prefer some kind of a hybrid situation. Yeah, yeah. Of the 1,500 remote workers they surveyed, 27% hope to continue working remotely full-time indefinitely, while 61% would prefer to mix working from home with going in the office two or three days a week. So 81% either don't want to go back or prefer a hybrid schedule. And here's funny, parents yeah. who have kids at home, they're more likely to want to go back. <laughs> and uh-oh, married people want to go back to the office more so than singles. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that says something. That doesn't say something good. No, no. Okay. Tulips, Bob, it's spring, and there are tulips everywhere. There are tulips everywhere. And tulips are everywhere on most continents, and they occur naturally in every color except what? Tulips occur naturally in every color except... What's the answer? Blue. Blue? Yeah, who knew? Uh, And did you know that the petals of a tulip are edible? Some taste like lettuce, and others like peas, and others like cucumbers. No, I didn't know they were petable edible edibles. Edible petables. <laughs> That's a great uh, term to sell them in a little packet. <laughs> edible petals. In the 17th century, Holland had a tulip buying craze, which is why today they produce 60% of the world's supply. Yes, that was a exuberance for oh, something. for tulips. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, it was crazy. People were mortgaging their houses to pay for tulip bulbs back yeah. then. Okay, 
Another history question, Marcia. Oh, yay. <laughs> what were the British offered as part of the war reparation package at the end of World War II? Now, they refused it because they felt this prize of war had no future. It was a business. Bitcoin. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, they refused it because why? Because they thought it had no future. And they refused it. It was... I'll give you a hint. To, yeah, I'll give you give a hint. Me a hint. They believe cars with engines at the back had no future. Oh, <laughs> so? So they turned down Volkswagen. Oh, my gosh. They were offered the Volkswagen business as part of war reparations, but they said, you know, those cars with engines in the back have no future. The British occupation authorities did place an order for 20,000 cars, though, to help put VW back on its feet, but they could have gone on yeah. to own Volkswagen. Anyway, Volkswagen later went on to produce more of a single model than any other car maker in history, the rear-engine Volkswagen yeah. Beetle. Oh, well, that's very enlightening, Bob. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Well, in the Stay Healthy column in Parade magazine, it reveals that the longest burp on record was achieved in 2009. <laughs> Jeez. Shut up. It was this achieved... sounds like something you'd expect me to bring to I the know. table. It uh, was achieved in 2009 by an Italian lad named... Michel Forgoni, uh, or Michel Forgoni, sorry. And anyway, how long was his burp, Bob, in 2009? Has this been recorded? We're going to play it on the show? No. Okay, good. God, <laughs> people are eating, Bob. I would think, I'd say 10 <laughs> seconds. That's a long burp. It is, it is. But the answer, Bob, is 1 minute and 13 seconds. You are kidding. <laughs> Oh my good! We, you know, we do need a recording of that. It's, it's got to be on the web somewhere. Boy, boy, we would just gain so many listeners with that. <laughs> and just for factoid uh, info, the average number of belches a healthy person has in 24 hours is how many? It is I have no idea. Well, just take a guess based the on your own. average number of belches in 24 hours. Well, my goodness. <laughs> Let's say uh, I'll go up to 10. Yeah, I, I would have thought it was in that wheelhouse with you maybe 14 hey but, hey 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 okay. <laughs> 32.7 32.7 belches yeah in, what's in, a point seven belch what's that <laughs> i don't know that's a good question a grunt or something yes in 24 hours well i wouldn't have guessed it was in a healthy person in a healthy person maybe that's belches 32.7 times per 24 hours correct and on that note let's take a break <laughs> We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Okay, Marcia, here's a question, a history question with regard to technology. Who is the first U.S. president who had the use of electricity, and how did he use it? Okay, well, was it uh, had the use of electricity? In the White House, I'm was talking. Was it FDR? Was it before FDR? Oh, yeah, well before FDR. Oh, okay. Electricity. Uh, okay. Thomas Edison yeah, did yeah, the okay. light bulb back in 1876. Okay, all right, uh, tell me. Benjamin Harrison. Benjamin Harrison's presidency was the first to oversee a White House wired with electricity. So you could commend him for embracing scientific progress if it weren't for the fact that he had a desperate fear of light switches, which kept him from ever actually using electricity. So the White House <laughs> really? is wired. The White oh, House is funny. wired for light and electricity, and the president refuses to use it because he's scared to death of light switches. Wow. Wow. <laughs> okay, Bob. You, you know how we use the word toady? Yes. He's a toady. Uh, what, what is it? Well, it's somebody who's uh, kind of obsequious to other people. Very good. Obsequious. Uh, Look that one up. Uh, 
Well, I have the answer. Obsequious sycophant. Yes, there you go. (laughs) A butt kisser is what we're talking (laughs) about. That's exactly right. Okay. According to Who Put the Butter in Butterfly, toady is a 19th century slang expression for total eater, one who eats toads. Total eater? How do you say? Total eater, T-O-A-D-E-A-L-T-E-R. What does that mean? One who eats toads. Oh, okay. (laughs) Back in the day, frogs were considered a delicacy, whereas toads were believed to be poisonous. So traveling medicine shows use that belief to stage an incident where their assistants would pretend to eat a toad on stage and then fall victim to some fictitious dreaded malady, right? (laughs) And the medicine man, of course, would just happen to have a little elixir on hand and cure the poor lad almost instantly. And fortunately, he always had enough left over to sell the crowd. So the toad eater became known as the toady, someone willing to humiliate or endanger himself for his master. No kidding. Yeah. That's where it comes yeah. from. He's just a toady. Yeah. So they would fake something yeah. just to help sell something yeah. else. Wow. Yeah. That's an interesting. I never thought of that. That's very good. Yeah. Huh. Okay. All right, uh, we know that certain presidents uh, for certain kind of physical fitness things, uh, George W. Bush was a runner. He ran in marathons uh-huh. and so forth. What was Abraham Lincoln's athletic pastime? I can't see him doing sports. I don't know if they had pole vaulting back then or basketball because he was so tall and lanky. Was he a runner, cross-country runner? No, he was a welterweight fighter in his time. Really? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of presidents golf or jog to release tension, but Abraham Lincoln apparently preferred a more intense breed of physical activity. In his younger days, he earned a reputation as an ace wrestler, reportedly suffering only one one defeat in more than 300 matches. So it wasn't boxing, it was wrestling. Not only that, but the calm and kindly Lincoln we all know and love had a, <laughs> had a penchant for trash-talking his opponents. Oh, no, I love it. Can you imagine no. like trash-talking anyone? Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> oh, no, I, that's a good uh, uh, visual to think about, isn't it? Abraham Lincoln is a young man. Yeah. We're talking real wrestling, real hard wrestling yeah. on the ground. Uh-huh. 300 matches and only one loss amazing. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Okay. Pin money, Bob. I know where that came from. I'm sorry. I just read about this. Metal for pins was so rare that there was only one time of the year that pins were sold. So housewives saved up their money to buy pins for sewing and things like that. Correct? Ah, It's close. It's very close. Where was that? In England? Yes. Back in the good old 1500s, the monarchy had exclusive rights to manufacturing pins. Did you know that? Mm. And they chose to produce a small amount of them and charge a whole lot of farthlings. It was a moneymaker for them. Henry VIII's wife, Catherine Howard, popularized uh, the French invention. And her subjects, all the women, were clamoring to get their hands on those pins because, uh, you know, she was their idol. It was decreed that the pins could be sold for only two days in January. So that goes along with what you thought. And husbands who could afford it gave their wives money to run out and buy the much-coveted pins. And behold, the term, pin money. When you think about it, that was quite a technological innovation to make something that small, that well-crafted, you know, the the machinery that was required for, you know, molding those pins and everything. Yeah. It was very tiny. Yeah. So actually, the answer could be both of our answers. We're both right. (laughs) I like that. Let's go with that. Okay. Okay. Let me, I got another one here. Infomercials are everywhere today, but 
What year do you think the first 30-minute infomercial aired on TV? I imagine that goes way back to the 50s, early 50s, late 40s. Yeah. Because yeah. everybody was doing something just to get on television, and TV stations were hungry for revenue, so yeah. they'd put anything on the air. Yes. and uh, it. So my, when was it, and what was it for? 1949. It was the Vitamix Splendor. Oh. <laughs> and what what was the takeoff on that, you think? That was the uh, I Love Lucy. She did the Vita Vita Vegemin. Uh, the Vita Meta Vegemin. Infamous Blender commercial skit. I never knew that it was a takeoff on an infomercial. I didn't either. And uh, it was just she kept drinking it, and then she yeah. kept getting more and more drunk. Yeah, that's why everybody was laughing so hard because they had all seen that 1949 infomercial, apparently. Wow. And so she did a takeoff on it. It's funny, things like that, you know, what inspired them. Yeah. You lose that over time. Yeah. What and, was the inspiration? And we wouldn't have known. We saw it long after yeah. you know, she had done it. We didn't so. even, I don't think we even saw that as kids. It was like I you don't see think something so. later. Yeah. And I always assumed, well, it was a tonic or an elixir which had too much alcohol in it, yeah. which apparently it was. But I'll be darned. So there was a real thing. And what was the name of it the again? Vitam- yeah. The Vitamix Blender. The Vitamix Blender. I'll be darned. I uh, have some famous last words again. You haven't done that for a while. No, but those I found were some kind good. of fun ones. Okay. Whose last words were, this isn't Hamlet, you know. There's context I have to explain okay. after you figure out who well, it give is. Well, me, give me at least a profession. I uh, can't... He was an actor, a he, famous actor. Uh, okay. Was it like uh, Barrymore or somebody? Somebody like that. Okay. Lawrence Olivier. Okay. He said that on his deathbed, uh, when his nurse spilled water on him as she tried to moisten <laughs> his lips, he says, this isn't Hamlet, you know. It's not meant to go in my bloody ear. Oh, <laughs> Okay, whose last words were just a lot of damn foolery? Really? And what were the context of well, that? Well, give me give me a profession or this something. This was a uh, well, he was a doctor, but he became a very famous Supreme Court justice. I don't, I don't know. Sherlock Holmes is named after him. Holmes, Holmes, Justice Holmes. What's his first two <laughs> names, Marcia? I can't remember. Oliver Wendell. Oliver Wendell Holmes. Yes. He was 94 years old on his deathbed. As he watched an oxygen tent being erected around him, he said, just a lot of damn foolery. (laughs) And he died. And he died. Yeah, well. (laughs) In 2018, Bob, uh, several beaches along the coast of northwest France had to close down. Why? Northwest France in 2018. Northwest France. Beaches all along the coast closed down. It had something to do with pollution, I'll bet. No. No. No, this is France, so. Okay. It wasn't. What, there's no pollution in France? No, there is, that. but the reason is very French. An amorous dolphin. <laughs> what? <laughs> they nicknamed him Zafar, and he was rutting and trying to engage some female swimmers. The, fi- <laughs> the final straw came when Zafar tossed a woman into the air. <laughs> That's when the beaches closed down until... Zafar calmed down. <laughs> oh my God! Because he was a little too amorous. Yes. Yeah. With, uh, yeah. And why he how, how he could tell the difference between men and women is beyond me. <sighs> okay. All right. Now we know uh, over the centuries of war crimes and uh, some terrible atrocities, but it's only been in modern times that there people have had to pay a price for that. So tell me this: Who was the only soldier convicted of war crimes? Oh, Kelly. In the American Civil War. Oh. <laughs> Wrong war. Wrong war. That was Vietnam. Uh, 
I have no idea. Major Henry Wirtz. He was the commanding officer at Andersonville, the Confederate prison in Georgia. How bad was it? It was a 261-acre prison, only in existence for 14 months in 1864 and 65, but it was the largest Confederate prison. It was built for 10,000 prisoners, but there were 49,500 men imprisoned there. And in the end, 13,000 died from either overcrowding, disease, poor sanitation, or malnutrition. So they they tried him, and he was convicted of a war crime, uh, one of the first in modern American history, because he ran this camp. Wow. And it was totally inadequate. It was terrible. And he was hanged in Washington, D.C. in 1865, the only person executed for war crimes during really? the Civil War. The no only one. kidding. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, and for being inhumane to... All right, now, one more question about that. What famous word did Andersonville Prison give us? It's used today in journalism and project management. Endgame? No, Uh, not endgame. End? uh, Something along those lines. You use it all the time. You've used it all the time as a writer. uh, What what do you have to meet? Deadlines. Deadlines, yeah. It referred to a simple rail fence with posts that ran around the inside perimeter of the prison, 19 feet from the walls. You couldn't go across that. That was called the dead line. Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Because Confederate guards and sentry posts would shoot you. Yeah, that's you it. You didn't cross over. Today, a deadline is the latest time or the last date by which something could be completed. So in prison, you don't want to cross a deadline. In business, you don't want to miss a deadline. Wow. And it came from this Andersonville prison. Huh. Well, that's very, I love those etymology things. Yes. Okay, Bob, 2008, a 19-year-old Texas kid won over $35 million in a Powerball lottery win. Wow. But he lost most of it in a year. How? Wow. How can it, you lose $35 million in a year? Well, he found a way. Was it gambling? <laughs> no. Wasn't gambling. Did he give it all away? No. <laughs> Well, did he invest in improper things or well, he, unusual or speculative things? Investment is the key term. Remember, okay. Bob, teenage brains aren't known for early development. Well, that's true. <laughs> what is it, 20-something before they even get full? But apparently the lad loved wrestling because he invested almost all the money he won in a wrestling TV production company called Restalicious. What? Restalicious. It was meant to compete with WWE and WCW, and it featured women in lingerie wrestling together in a pink ring. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's a million-dollar idea. What went wrong? What went wrong, I ask you? 19-year-old idea of wisely investing his money. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, women in negligees wrestling. Yeah, who wouldn't think that would be successful? I'd like to finish with a quote by Walter Winchell. Remember him? Oh, yes. He was before our time, but we always heard of him growing up. Walter Winchell, he said, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and all the ships at sea. (laughs) That's it, Bob. Uh Okay, quote from him. A real friend is one who walks in when the rest of the world walks out. We're walking out on you right now. (laughs) Great transition. (laughs) Thank you so much for that, Marsha. And thanks to everyone who's been listening today. We want to remind you, just like Steve Short of San Francisco, if you'd like to submit a question to us, you can go to our website. Theofframp.show. And go to. Contact us. And leave us your question, the answer, and who you want to answer it. All right, I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. You've been listening to The The Off-Ramp.
The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.